But today, I want to talk about the divine origin of the gospel from Galatians chapter 1 and from verse 11 through to the end of the chapter in verse 21. Now, I've got two scripture readings. I always have, when I preach, uh, an Old Testament reading, this time from Isaiah 45, at the moment, verses 20 to 23. Uh, I'll be going a little bit further in that passage as we proceed. And here it is. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Saviour. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return, to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now notice that I have some lines highlighted there. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And <coughs> that uh, highlights the fact that there, for salvation, there is nothing more needed than a look to the Lord who saves. More about that as we proceed. And then from the New Testament, our passage from Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. See that highlighted? For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, in other words, back home to Tarsus and surrounds. Now, by way of introduction, Whence came the Christian message to the world? 
That is the Christian message as it is set forth in the New Testament and specifically the message, the gospel message that Paul preached which is set forth in outline in Galatians and then the full dress statement in his epistle to the Romans. And the two epistles must be read together. Romans is uh, somewhat later than Galatians, but they have the same doctrine. And what precisely is that message? We need to understand that carefully. Is there a contrast between Paul's gospel and that by preached by other apostles and even by Christ himself? These are questions that have occupied people particularly in the last 100 to 150 years. Paul insists that the gospel that he preached came directly from Christ himself and from no human source. Well, let's uh, look at some negatives before we go on to the positive. I said a moment ago, not from any human source. This gospel, he says, and insists, because he underlines it by saying, before God I do not lie. This gospel did not originate with man. He didn't get it from Peter. He didn't get it from James. He didn't get it from John. And later on in Galatians 1, he mentions those three apostles and <coughs> outlines that his uh, contact with them was brief and that his discussions with them were not over the message that he preached but other matters. So he didn't get it from Peter. He didn't get it from any of the other apostles. And it didn't come from his own mind. He says it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this contrasts with the material for the message that he preached that he did get from the other apostles. The account of the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 and from verse 23. I delivered to you what I also received. That Christ in the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, etc. He got that from the apostles. And then further on in the same epistle, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day and that he was seen by these various witnesses including 500 at one time, etc. These are the facts of gospel history as recorded in the four gospels 
And it would appear that uh, as far as the resurrection appearances are concerned, the body of the apostles in Jerusalem put out an official list of witnesses to the resurrection or to the risen Christ. So those matters Paul did get from the other apostles. However, the theology of the cross and the resurrection, the message of being put right with God, that is justified, put in the right by faith alone in Christ's finished work, apart from man's own works, that he did not receive from any of the, the other apostles. That came by revelation. You see, this was Paul's special contribution to the apostolic message. The apostles, yes, he gets the basic facts of gospel history as we find them in the four gospels. But the doctrine that uh, flows from that, the doctrine of justification connected with the atonement, Christ on the cross, that was revealed and it was Paul given to Paul to proclaim it. Well, contrary to all this, Paul affirms that he, as I said, received his gospel message and the gospel doctrine directly from the risen Christ. It was revealed, it didn't come from any human source. That should be clear. Now, <coughs> we either credit this claim or we don't. There's no half measures. No half measures at all. But yet, over the past 150 years, there have been, I would say, Herculean efforts to explain away Paul's gospel that somehow he did get it from men. One line of approach and there have been enormous amounts of uh, scholarly material written. Well, he got it from various Jewish sources. After all, he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee, as he tells us in Philippians. And he got it from these various Jewish sources and it's a sort of a mishmash. And so we have intense studies of Jewish writings at or near the time of the New Testament. I'm not going to go into details here. They're, they're boring and uh, at times amusing. You can look at them with a certain sense of detachment and uh, mild amusement of how these people get uh, into such bypaths uh, but they are precisely that, bypaths. And they're uh, 
they appeal to sectarian documents from Qumran there on the northwestern corner of the Dead Sea where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and probably you've heard about them. Uh, 30, more than 30 years ago, there was a certain woman from Sydney University who made a big splash. The ABC gave her a big rap. Uh, <coughs> a woman called Barbara Thiering. And uh, she tried to say that uh, the whole gospel story, uh, as we have it in the four gospels, is, uh, was uh, largely fiction, but you can... Uh, disentangle the elements of truth and uh, Paul's somehow got hold of this and distorted it in his own way. Uh, of course, uh, she made a splash and the ABC supported her. Well, I learned a bit about uh, the aftermath of her uh, uh, discourses on public television. A few years later, uh, she became so extreme in her views that even the ABC dropped her, and that is saying something. <laughs> and that was about uh, 1996. She first made that splash in about 1990. So we've, since then we've heard no more from Barbara Thiering. And there are others who say, oh, he got it from various Aramaic sources. The Targums are early uh, Aramaic commentary, uh, some of it rather pithy, uh, sort of comments on Old Testament texts. Uh, <coughs> and these were enshrined in Jewish sources. So they go to town on that. And then uh, a big deal during the uh, latter years of the past century, uh, suddenly scholars got hold of the Mishnah. Now, what's the Mishnah? Uh, it's a codification of what were essentially Pharisaic teachings up to AD 200. Pharisaic teachings, yes, we need to understand there that with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, all but one of the Jewish sects that existed prior to that date, they disappeared almost overnight. There was one sect that survived, and that was the Pharisees. Their views triumphed by default, and as a result, that developed into what we know as Rabbinic Judaism. And their teachings were first of all enshrined in this uh, collection of documents put together called the Mishnah. And there have been all sorts of scholars who've got hold of this and got very excited about it. This, they say, is where Paul got his teaching. No, not really. There's a lot of difference. A lot of difference. And so these ideas... They're still around, but uh, they have the status, really, of scholarly fads. 
Well, there are others who say, no, uh, he didn't get it from Jewish sources so much. He got it from pagan sources, the Greeks and various other religions that were around at the time. Uh, and so there have been intensive studies of Greek and Gnostic sources, I'll explain that in a moment, from the contemporary pagan world. Gnostic comes from the word gnosis. We have it in our language. An agnostic is someone who claims not to know that there's a God or that there's a supernatural or something like that. An agnostic. So a Gnostic is one who's supposedly, or according to his claims, in the know. And uh, they had a whole series of very esoteric ideas. It grew up to enormous proportions in the period after the apostolic age. But uh, there was this claim that there was a pre-Christian Gnostic uh, set of ideas. Well, that's been debunked. I won't go into that anymore. And uh, so we've got these pre-Christian. And there are others who say, well, there in Tarsus, his home, hometown, uh, there were these ideas from Greek philosophy that got around, perhaps he got it from them. And then the mystery religions. There are all of these very dark and uh, rather forbidding sort of religious uh, cults and with their uh, ideas. Uh, they're called mystery religions. And they had all sorts of weird practices and beliefs. And uh, there have been those people who have said that somehow Paul got his ideas from them. Well, that's just a sample. I don't want to dwell on it anymore. Paul's gospel was divine revelation indeed. Let's have a look at some lines of verification that it was indeed something divinely revealed. First of all, there's Paul's conversion and early Christian life. And Paul makes a great play of that and he gives us chronological information as to his own life to demonstrate that he could not have received his gospel from men. Paul gives the chronological details of his life thus far up to the writing of Galatians. As near as we can determine, Paul was converted around about the, uh, the year AD 34. He refers to it in Galatians 1, when he who'd set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was uh, pleased to reveal his son in me, or if you like, to me. I think both are uh, uh, acceptable and both are true. And then he says three years in Arabia and then back to Damascus. That brings us to around about AD 36. And around that time, he went up to Jerusalem, albeit rather briefly. He spent 15 days there, not much longer. 
And then he was, as it were, on ice for the next 14 years. And by the way, you see 36 to 47, you say, oh, that's shorter than 14 years. Jewish reckoning always was what we call inclusive. Each year or part of a year was counted as one year. And so you start from 36 and you go right through to 47 uh, and uh, it's only approximate. Anyway, so that brings us to AD 47 or thereabouts. He visited Jerusalem for a second time and we read of this in Acts 11. Uh, it's called the Famine Relief Visit where he, he with Barnabas took famine relief to the uh, Christians at Jerusalem. And then AD 48-49 he embarks on his first missionary journey and that is the foundation of the Galatian churches to which he writes in his epistle to the Galatians. What he's getting at is this. At no time could he have, been, have possibly obtained his gospel from the other apostles? His visits to Jerusalem were brief and fleeting and for most of that time he was back in Cilicia in his home turf, hometown and surrounds. He couldn't possibly have got it from the other apostles. Time and his infrequent visits to the apostles forbade it. And by the time that he uh, went up to Jerusalem in AD 50 for that Jer Jerusalem council in AD 50, which we read about in Acts 15, he was already preaching the gospel that we find in both the epistle of the Galatians and uh, to the Romans. And secondly, Paul's gospel is beyond human ability. Again, he says, my gospel came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is a bold claim. We need to think about that. A really bold claim. Can it be verified? Well, this is one outstanding fact. In support of this claim, no religion or philosophy through history has ever come up with it. That man is justified before God, man is saved by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ without works, without effort. And no one, no religion or philosophy has ever come up with it. Consider a few examples, what we read of today. Look at Islam. We read a lot about Islam just lately, don't we? Central to Islam is what's called the five pillars. One, repeating the creed, it's called the Shahada. Two, prayers five times a day, starting at 4.30 in the morning. And they bow down, and when they do, they face Mecca. 
Thirdly, fasting during Ramadan. Fourth, almsgiving for the destitute. We can endorse that, I suppose, but not for the reasons they propose. And five, a pilgrimage to Mecca, called the Hajj, at least once in a lifetime. Now, two things about Islam. One, it's a Christian heresy. It's not a religion in its own right. And two, it's a works program. It's all about what you've got to do. The five pillars of Islam. And then we've got Hinduism. That's all about striving for good karma so as to achieve a better state in the next life. It's all about reincarnation and if you stuff up the, the, uh, your, your uh, progress in this life, well, you might come back as an insect uh, or a cat or a leaf on a tree, something like that. Uh, but if you uh, get good karma in this life, well, you might come back as uh, a politician, perish the thought. But yet it's another works program, you see that? Another works program. And then there's Buddhism. It seeks the abolition of desire. And this is their version of salvation. When you've eliminated desire from your very consciousness, you will achieve nirvana. What's nirvana? Absorbed in, being absorbed into the nothing. What a hope, eh? At this point about desire, I think back to my student days and I had a, a chap of Buddhist persuasion in my uh, room at college one night my university days and he explained I listened to him for a little bit about uh, abolition of desire and I said um, can I ask a few questions yeah go ahead I said this desire you don't mean desire for this or that thing or a woman sexual desire or something no no it's desire in itself and you, I said you've got to work hard at this is that right that's right. I said, well, I've got a problem. Oh, what's that? Desiring to get rid of desire seems a bit self-defeating to me. <laughs> you know, he couldn't see the problem. He couldn't see the problem. But then you see again, it's another works program, isn't it? And even within Christianity itself, Works programs have time and again through history intruded and corrupted the gospel that Paul preached. And I don't want to go into all the examples. I'll just take that as a given for the moment. I could expound on that, but that's a course in church history and I don't want to get into that too much this morning. 
And the third point that underlines that uh, Paul received his gospel by revelation is that it is in line with what is taught by the Old Testament prophets. In his defence before King Agrippa, as we read in Acts 26, Paul addresses Agrippa there at one stage and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Well, what I'm preaching is nothing more than what the prophets have taught and said would take place. You can read that there in Acts 26. Paul insists that what he was teaching was nothing but the prophets before him did not proclaim in their own right. The Old Testament prophets received divine revelation. No question about that. And here's our Old Testament passage. It's just one uh, of several that we could uh, focus on. Consider Isaiah. This prophet received divine revelation to underline that. At the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45, he predicted Cyrus, King Cyrus, the conqueror of Babylon, 170 years before Cyrus came on the scene. Very much a historical character. And uh, Josephus records how when Cyrus entered Babylon, some Jewish exiles showed him the prophecy of Isaiah and he marvelled that this Hebrew prophet had predicted exactly what he had accomplished in his own career. Now, we could go back to Abraham as Paul does in Romans 4, that justification by faith alone is as old as Abraham and indeed older for that matter. But here it's the prophet Isaiah as can be seen in verses 22 to 25. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. I'll come back to that word strength in a moment. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. The word all's there. Just there. Uh, there are one or, once or twice that word is used of men, but mostly it is used of, only of God. Righteousness and strength. So you could talk about his divine strength and his divine prerogative. 
Just go back. And so Paul can affirm, as he does, that his gospel is in line with Old Testament revelation. He received it by divine revelation, just as, say, the prophet Isaiah did. But prior to that, he summons all the earth, back in verse 22, to look to him and be saved. How? Well, you have the famous passage in chapter 53. By the obedience of the suffering servant, many will be made righteous or declared righteous. The suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the prophet says, look to me, all the earth and be saved. This verse, I don't know whether you can see it up the back there, I'm going to read it for you. Isaiah 45:22 was the occasion of one of history's famous conversions. There was one bitterly cold Sunday morning in early January 1850. A young boy of 15 trudged through the, the blizzard towards the village of Colchester in Essex. He was troubled about his salvation and his standing in God's grace. And uh, as he trudged through the snow, he saw and entered a small primitive Methodist chapel. However, when he got in, he found that the pastor was unable to be present that morning, and so a layman ascended the pulpit in his place. His name to this day remains unknown. He just appeared, and then he disappeared. He had no theological training, but he opened the Bible to this passage and saw Isaiah 45 and verse 22, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And so the preacher explained as best he could, Anyone can look, he said, even a child can look. But then the text says, Look unto me. Many a year look unto yourselves. There's no use looking there. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. And as he expounded on this theme, his eye spotted the young boy up at the back of the chapel and he addressed him directly. He said, young man, you look miserable. Look now to Jesus Christ and be saved. You have nothing to do but look and live. And so the boy looked to the Saviour and found salvation and assurance as he left that chapel that Sunday morning. Who was that young boy? He was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who went from that little chapel to become the greatest preacher of the Victorian period. First from New Park Street Chapel, and then from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, South London, his preaching reached untold thousands. And many 
thousands likewise found the Saviour through his powerful sermons. I read a story just uh, by the way of uh, workmen in their lunch break here in the Docklands in Melbourne in uh, sometime during the 1870s. And they just took a, took, took a rest from uh, <coughs> loading the ship for the voyage back to London. And one of them uh, uh, spotted the inside of a barrel and it was lined with uh, printed paper and it turned out to be one of Spurgeon's sermons. And he read the sermon and he found the Saviour. That's here in Melbourne. He was often lampooned in the press. He was called by his critics the last of the Puritans. And yet his blessed influence continues to this day. There's Spurgeon in his early days and then in his later life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Isaiah 45 and 22, look to me and be saved. And that was the same message that Paul preached. So let's draw some implications for our present world. The fads of scholarship that I've mentioned, at least in outline, I mention them because they've invaded many colleges and pulpits Really, as I uh, observed uh, earlier, there are cause really for laughter, both in heaven and on earth. Three times in the Psalms you have a record of how God laughs, laughs at men. And we can also say they cancel each other out. Did he get it from... Jewish sources, do you get from pagan sources? And they cancel each other out. Secondly, and here it's as much a personal bleat as anything, the constant designation of religious groups and given by politicians and the media as faith communities and people of faith must be opposed. We hear this constantly, don't we? Uh, where some politician would say, well, we're passing legislation for the benefit of people of faith. And what they mean is uh, the Christians, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the, uh, the Sikhs, and you, you name it. They're all on the same level. No. The Christian church is a faith community. All the rest are works communities works communities because they have a works program. And so it reflects an outlook and a desire to put all religions on the same level. And Christians must oppose this. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given unto under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And the other point, it betrays a misunderstanding of the gospel, which is grace alone through faith alone, apart from works. Let's hear no more about faith communities. And thirdly, justification by faith alone is not merely a point of doctrine. It is the whole basis for assurance of salvation as we saw in that uh, story of Spurgeon there a few minutes ago. The whole basis for our assurance of salvation, whether in our Christian life now or in the hour of death, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Hear then the invitation of our Lord Jesus. Come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You see, rest, he says, from the burden of works based on religious performances. He directed that against the Pharisees of his day. And we can direct it against all the works programs in our world today. The never-ending striving, the endless procedures, and the haunting fears. Have I done enough? Have I done it the right way? Have I done anything uh, perfectly? And these are the haunting fears. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The, the law is fully comprehensive. It sets out the entirety of what God requires of man. It's cast in a negative way, but its purpose is essentially positive. Don't steal, for instance, means positively be generous with the material things that you have. Don't murder means positively support and promote life. So we have a vested interest as Christians in the horrors of abortion. Just to name one example. Hear from the hymnist Augustus Topelady. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. You see, in summary, it's really simple. Man's religions... Tell us, do. Do this, do that, do the other. God's revealed religion, if you're going to use that word, is all about what is done. What is done. 
the Lord Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. John 19.30 And see, this gospel, it reaches across the centuries. If this gospel, the gospel that Paul preached, is from God's revelation, and not merely man's invention, what's your response? We are duty-bound to accept it and trust in the Christ of the gospel, that it comes from God and not, is not some human concoction. Therefore, do not trust in your own exercises, in your moral performances, or whatever, trust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. But beware, we hear a lot about faith today. I mentioned media and politicians. But what's so often meant is faith in faith, where faith itself becomes an item of merit. No, no. The Old Testament passage gives us the clue. Look unto me, said that unknown preacher to Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. There is life for a look at the Son of God, the look of faith alone. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at its moment for thee. There look, sinner, look to him and be saved, unto him who was nailed to the tree. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of free grace justification by faith alone, which has run through the centuries and has been attended with your blessing through everyone that has preached it faithfully. And even though men have corrupted it, men have denied it, men have tried to explain it away, Lord, keep us focused on that message, the gospel that Paul preached, and never to let it go, either in this life or the hour of death or in all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.